0: Good morning morning, Coastal Church. Great to see you. Oh, man, just so much to be thankful for this morning. Uh, do me a favor, get your Bible out. Turn with me to Exodus 32 and uh, get your note sheet out. We're asking that you commit to an eight-week small group. So if you're not in one, get in one. But our small groups are sermon-based, so the way you prepare and show up is take notes, okay, and that will get you ready for the small group. Uh, I'm really thankful for all of you who have been donating to Coastal Coastal through the years. Uh, we are about two-thirds of the way done our new roof, and there's no way five, six weeks ago we'd be sitting here without buckets everywhere uh, without our new roof. So thank you for your continued donation, making those things possible. Thank you to our parking team, All right? Jimmy and Matt. Like it's All right, sit down. I'm now sorry I did it. So anyway, I'm just kidding. Love you guys. And uh, they are out there in the pouring rain. And uh, it's probably not the best day to recruit for the parking team. But if you want to sign up, okay, we can always use help. And uh, and then last night, man, we, all day yesterday, the students had our student summit here. It's probably over 150 students from our seven campuses. And they actually closed or sang that song that we just sang. And uh, students aren't as inhibited as you guys are, right? So they were up here at the front and they had broken their team. They broke up into four teams of different colors. And they were waving their flags and they were singing that song. And I just wish I could bottle it for you all. It was really amazing. And to the youth volunteers, some of y'all, I see some of y'all sitting here. You guys were here all day, so thank you, thank you, thank you. Really was an incredible day yesterday at the student summit. So, students, let me hear it. Yeah, it was awesome, man. I really had a great time. So uh, today, we are going to talk about idolatry. All right. So after a great morning of praise, that's where we're going, right? And so, uh, and so that the idea of idolatry is. Um, you know, it's kind of a Romans 1 issue. I was talking about this last week. As we're kind of talking, we're wrapping up the book of Exodus. And really, the whole back end of this book is really about worshiping God truly, right? Not falsely. And and in Romans 1, the Apostle Paul builds this a case that we're we're all worshipers. It's not a matter of if you worship, it's a it's a matter of are you gonna worship something that's true and brings life, or are you gonna worship something that's false. And brings death, right? And so uh, anything other than worshiping the true and living God is an idol. Now, this morning, we're going to look where the nation of Israel built a physical statue. uh, And I think that's what we often think when we think about idolatry. But really, idolatry is the affections of the heart, and what it is that captures your heart? I, I, as you do, we all have many idols that we're fighting against. Even as Christians, we're now—you know—we're not dead in our sins anymore. We're free from sin's dominion, but we're still under its influence. And and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're free to kind of knock these idols out of our lives. And I have several that I fight with, and 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 one of them is uh, ice cream. And uh, and so I mean, it's obvious, right? And so I. Uh, And so there was one time that I wanted ice cream really badly and it almost killed me. Um, And so it's currently killing me slowly, but this time it almost killed me quickly. And we were at my uh, wife's family's business up in, up in, in New York on Long Island and uh, and i before we got married i worked her family runs like a senior adult home and uh, and her my wife's grandparents lived on the third floor of this three story home really beautiful home and uh, and before we got married i worked there so i knew the ins and outs of the business and so after we got married we went up and we were visiting and it was late at night it was probably about 10 10:30 at night and my wife was visiting with her siblings in the other room and i got a craving for ice cream and so i went to the third floor apartment where my wife's grandparents lived and there was no ice cream in their fridge and So I knew that I had to sneak down to the first floor into the commercial kitchen and sneak into the walk-in freezer to get the ice cream that is there for the senior adults. Okay, And so I knew where the key was. I sneaked down. Literally, no one knows I'm down there. I don't have a cell phone with me. It's all dark. All the seniors are in bed. I'm sneaking into the kitchen. I get the key. I unlock the kitchen. I sneak into the walk-in fridge, which then leads to the walk-in freezer, I get to the walk-in freezer and there's probably, and if ice cream's your idol, this is like overload. There's probably like 10 cartons of ice cream, right? And it's the commercial kind where it's the big tubs and they're not labeled, right? And so I decide to close the freezer door so I can go through each tub at a time and decide, like, lay them all out. Like, man, this is going to be awesome. Let me pick my one. And so I lay them out. I finally pick my tub. I put it under my arm, and I head back to the walk-in freezer door. You know how walk-in freezers have those push-button handles, right? I push the handle, and the door doesn't open. Okay? that's kind of funny, but it's kind of not, right? And so I push the button again, and it doesn't open. And it's late at night, and no one knows I'm in this freezer. And I'm literally thinking my idol is now going to kill me. Right here, I'm going to be uh, Sean Sickle by the time they come back in the middle of the night, you know. And, um, and finally, I just rammed the thing a few times and it opened, and I was like, in, I'm eating my screen, and that was dangerous, you know, kind of thing. But never doing that again. But we find the nation of Israel uh, waiting for Moses. So, Moses is on Mount Sinai, And he's getting the Ten Commandments, and he's up there for 40 days and 40 nights. And in the waiting, uh, the nation of Israel becomes impatient, and they build for them an idol. Idols will always kill you. They're not like a comfy little furry bunny that we keep in our lives, right? They are out to kill and destroy you. And so the nation of Israel, I'll just recap it real quick, right? So Moses is delayed, and so the people collect the gold. Aaron says, hey, let's build They are like, hey, they're getting patient. Aaron says, collects the gold from the people, and they make a golden calf. It's a false god, and they party to the false god. And then in verse 7 of Exodus 32, God lets Moses know that the people are in rebellion, And God threatens actually to wipe out the entire nation of Israel and restart the nation with just Moses. And Moses then does something amazing, which I'm going to park on in a few minutes. He actually intercedes for the people and reminds God of his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then in verse 15, Moses comes down from the mountain, right? And he sees what the people have done, and he's so angry, he breaks the tablets of the Ten Commandments. He grinds up the golden calf into a dust, throws it in the water, and makes the people drink the the golden calf, right? And then he confronts Aaron, And Aaron, the priest, makes these pathetic excuses for his behavior and the behavior of people, of the people. And then Moses confronts the people in their sin, And it leads to the charge of idolatry where Moses and and the Levites put 3,000 ringleaders that brought this false worship into the nation of Israel, puts them to death. And then in in verses 30 to 35, Moses makes, again, an incredible intercession prayer for the the people of Israel, that God would forgive them and God would use them to make God's name great. That's an overview of 32. I want to bring out a couple points. Before I do that, can I pray? I just want to pray for us this morning that we'd be challenged by the word of God, Okay, Heavenly Father, this morning it's a little bit weighty, God, as we think about our human condition and our sin nature and how our natural bent, apart from your supernatural working in our hearts, is to, to run to things that don't give us life. To try to find life in things that are dead and things that you never intended for us to find life. And so, God, I pray that this morning we would find life in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why we just sang these two great confessions this morning of how much we believe this and, and because we have been brought from death to life through the person and work of Jesus. Encourage us in your word this morning, challenge us. I pray that we'd leave different. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, point number one. First thing I want to draw out this morning, silence and waiting do not mean God has forgotten us. Silence and waiting do not mean that God has forgotten us. So look at verse one of Exodus chapter 32. It says, when the people saw that Moses had delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said, up, make us gods who shall go before us. For as for this Moses the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. They got tired of waiting. Kind of a silence. That happens for us as Christians. What are you waiting for? What is it that you've been praying for? Why does it seem that God is taking so long in answering your prayers? It's really, really easy to grow discouraged in the waiting. It's really easy to begin to think that God has checked out of our circumstances. In the waiting, it's, it's easy in the waiting to begin to even doubt that God exists, and in that time, we can then begin to try to find life and things that don't bring life, and we end up with the eat, drink, and be merry, because I guess that's all that there is. I want to encourage you this morning that in the waiting, God is still active and working. While the nation of Israel doesn't hear from Moses, Moses is up on Mount Sinai. What is God doing with Moses in that moment? Anybody? What's Moses getting? The Ten Commandments. God has just redeemed a people from Egypt, and he's going to make them an even greater nation than they already are. He's taking them to a promised land, but the nation that God is building, he wants to be built on his character and he's giving, him, giving them these laws, the 10 commandments, that by the way, if a nation today builds on the Judeo-Christian ethic, they still see the blessing of the Lord, right? And by the way, as Christians, if the Ten Commandments are now in us by the power of the Holy Spirit, if we agree that the Ten Commandments are the character of God, and now God's molding us into His image by the power of the Spirit, then He's going to bless us. God was doing something amazing, but it did take a little waiting on the nation of Israel. As Christians, what are we waiting for? Anybody? What are we waiting for? We're waiting for the return of Christ. What's taking so long? And sometimes in the waiting, it's like, man, God, why is there so much hurting and suffering as we wait? Why can't you just take us home to heaven? Why don't we become Christians and we get to go immediately to heaven? Doesn't that seem like that'd be a lot easier for us? God, I'm praying for my lost spouse. I've been praying and I've been married to this person for so long and I'm just wondering, God, like, when are you going to stir and move? I've got children that don't yet know you, God, and I'm praying, and I'm wondering, and, I'm, and God, why is it that my pe- the people that don't even know you, that seems like they're prospering, and I'm over here struggling, like, what is taking so long, God? Why are you so slow? And the reason is, is God knows the best timing that makes sure that God gets the most glory. So that in your waiting, oh man, I never, I wouldn't have drawn it up this way, but wow, God, just wow. Second Peter, the Apostle Peter actually addresses this a little bit in chapter three. Look at this. It says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved. Let's see if I can get that up there. Second Peter, here we go. I see it on my screen. It's not on that screen. Three, two, one. Okay, I'll just read it. All right, here we go. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, One day is as how long, church? And a thousand years is as a day. In other words, like, here's time, right, from creation to whenever Christ returns, and and God's, like, up here, over it all, right? What if God decided to wait a week before Jesus returns, according to his time, Right? Verse 9, because guess what? The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness, but He is patient toward who? What if Jesus had returned the day before you got saved? See, God is, God's got a timing in seeing people come to Christ, and He's not slow, but He's patient towards you, and He's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And in the in-between time, church... The 23rd Psalm says that God has prepared a banquet feast for us in the presence of our enemies. Yes, it's difficult, but we pause in the difficulties and we feast. How do we feast, O Christian? What are some ways that we feast, right? So at Coastal, our vision as a church is to develop authentic followers of Jesus Christ who connect, grow, serve, and multiply. This is part of the banquet feast. You show up every single week in corporate worship and you sing these incredible truths that do something to your soul. Does anybody move this morning as we sang, right? Man, I am going to tell you something. There are times I sit here and I'm like, I can't believe I get to do this three times, right? And sing and praise the Lord. And then we hear the word of God and it washes over us in corporate worship. And then we go in a small group and we get in a circle with other believers and we flesh out, man, here's the things I'm struggling with. And can you pray for me? And the waiting is hard. And oh, I see how God's encouraging me here. And we celebrate that. And that's part of our banquet feast of preparing a banquet feast for me in the presence of my enemies. And then we serve others. And in that serving, you'd think that you'd be super fatiguing. At times it is, but as you're serving others, you're seeing God work in the other people's lives. You're like, man, God, thank you that I get to be a small part the piece of the puzzle of the picture of the kingdom of God. And then we multiply, we pour into others so that the next generation, the church goes on and on and on. And some of you are just nibbling when there's a banquet feast prepared for you. I show up to corporate worship like once a month. No wonder your soul is starving as you wait on the Lord. Because Isaiah 40 tells us, but they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. By the way, I love the digression of that. It's not a progression, it's a digression because sometimes you're walking with the Lord and you feel like you're soaring on the wings of eagles, don't you? Like, man, God's with me. This is awesome. And sometimes you don't feel like you're soaring, but you're at least running, right? And you're running and you're not growing weary. And sometimes you're like, I'm just plodding here. I'm just, it's one day, it's one foot in front of the next, but even in that, we shall walk and God will give us the strength to endure. We will not faint. Amen, church? And so we're patient and waiting on the Lord. Just because we're waiting doesn't mean God's not working. He's always working in the shadows around us so that he gets the greatest glory. All right, number two, second point I want to pull out this morning is the deception of false worship and idols. Deception of false worship and idols. Number one, letter A, your idols will rob you. Your idols will rob you. Your, the things that you set your affections on apart from Christ will rob you. They'll rob you of your life, your joy, your purpose. They'll even rob you of your money. Exodus two two says this, check this out. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So, all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and they brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with a graving tool and he made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. By the way, side note, what was one of the plagues that God sent on Egypt? He killed all the cattle. Yet the people of Israel are like, man, let's make for ourselves a cow. How ridiculous. God had already shown his superiority. Now, let me ask you another question. So they take the gold, collect all the gold from the people and make this calf. Where did they get the gold? Anybody remember? They plundered the Egyptians. God's intention from the very beginning was to bless his people. All the way back at the burning bush, Exodus chapter 3, where God, remember, God raises up Moses to deliver the nation of Israel from the Egyptians. Moses actually tried to do it in his own strength earlier, killed an Egyptian. the Egyptians and the Israelites ganged up on him. He fled out to the wilderness for 40 years. He's out there tending sheep. One day, God shows up to to Moses in a burning bush, right, and says this. Look at this, Exodus 3.20. Moses, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. And not just let you go, verse 21. I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold and jewelry and for clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and your daughters, and so you shall plunder the Egyptians. That's pretty cool, isn't it? You ought to try that. Go to your neighbor's house. Hey, I'd like some of your jewelry. See how that goes, right? That's literally how it happened. After the death angel went through the nation of Egypt and the Passover lamb, and when the people of God were protected, the people of Egypt were so terrified of the God of the Israelites, they went into their house and said, hey, before I leave, can you have my jewel? Can I have your jewelry? And they're like, take it, just go. Amazing, yes? And by the way, we're not just talking about money here, although that's certainly part of it. And We're just talking about the blessings of the Lord and their idols robbed them of all that God truly had for them. When we give in to our idols, we say, man, this stuff's gonna be better for me. It's not. It robs you of all that the Lord has for you, false idols. Letter B, we're cautioned here of worshiping the true God falsely We're cautioned here of worshiping the true God falsely. Look what Aaron says in verse 5 of Exodus 32. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made the proclamation, tomorrow shall be a feast to who, church? The Lord. That calf is not the Lord. I think what we're getting hints of here is something that our current culture fights with, the idea that you just have to have faith there's just a, just be sincere in what you believe. That is a lie. It's not that you have faith in faith. You have to have faith or sincerity in what is true. Yes? You, you can believe in something deeply that's a lie, that's not true, that's, that's bad for you. This is why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the linchpin of everything that we believe Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians 15. If Jesus is still in the grave, go do something else. But he stepped out of our last enemy death. He stepped out of his own grave, thereby authenticating who he said he was. This goes back to the sermon we preached last week. You can worship, the, you can think you're being sincere, but be, really be in false worship. We don't make up worship as we go. I think Aaron really believed he was leading people to the true and living God when in fact he was leading them to a lie. We have to worship God as he has commanded us to worship him. We have to walk in his holy and righteous statutes as he has laid them out for us. If we stray from that path, we're worshiping a God of our making and the God of our making will rob us and leave us poor and leave us joyless and lifeless and destitute. It is the true and living God that gives us life. Number three here, Aaron, when Aaron's confronted, we see the deception of sin. (laughs) So Aaron, Moses comes down from the mountain, he confronts Aaron who led this whole thing, or at least allowed it, and we get this ridiculous confession from Aaron. Check this out, Exodus 32, 23. Moses confronts Aaron. He's like, well, they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. And as for this Moses man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So, verse 24, so I said to them, let any of you have gold and take it off. And so they gave it to me and I threw it in the fire and out popped this calf. (sighs) And we know that's not true because in verse 4, we know that they fashioned it. They used tools to make it. Listen. Sin turns us into lying cowards. Sin does not make us bold. In fact, when, when someone confronts us on sin, we the obvious turns into the ridiculous. Let me say that again. Sin turns the obvious into the ridiculous. If you were to read Romans 1, I just keep going back to Romans 1, probably will throughout the whole series, but I probably should teach on it sometime. It's one of my favorite texts, but the Apostle Paul builds the case that we're all worshipers, and if we don't worship the true and living God, that eventually if we're worshiping false gods, false ideas, false thinking, our minds will grow clouded all the way to the point, if you read that text all the way to the end, all the way to the point that we as human beings can't even figure out gender. Something is obvious as gender grows confused when sin has its deception and spirals downward, right? And by the way, if you're here this morning, you're struggling with gender, you're struggling with transgenderism, like there is hope, like God gave you your gender. He made you who you are. It's a gift. It's not a curse. You don't have to be something different than one. God made you. You can know repentance and freedom in following God and who he made you to be in regard to gender. But here's the deal. When it comes to transgenderism and our current culture, like if I get up and if someone takes this clip from my online sermon today and it goes viral and I get up here and say, listen, men cannot have babies. I'm considered the crazy one. Men should not be competing in women's athletics. I'm the crazy one. Okay? And why am I the crazy one? Because sin takes the obvious and turns it into the ridiculous. When we don't do, do things God's way. We see this, by the way, in, in, in Adam and Eve, right? The first sin. By the way, I'm going to read you a verse out of Genesis chapter 3, but I want you to read it through this lens. I want you to imagine that Adam and Eve were married before there was sin, can you imagine how awesome that relationship is? I now have a book that I assign to people when I come to me for marriage counseling. It's called When Sinners Say I Do, incredible, incredible marriage book. You guys should get your hands on it, okay? But we now marry as sinners, but Adam and Eve actually had no sin. Can you imagine that? Perfect oneness, probably never had an argument until this happens. Genesis 3.11, God confronts Adam about taking the fruit that he wasn't supposed to eat. And so he says, well, I hid from you, God, because you were naked, verse 11 of Genesis 3. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I've commanded you not to eat? Now, here's Adam, right? He's manning up. He's taking responsibility. He's doing what a godly man should do, right? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, right? It turns the obvious into the ridiculous. Can you even imagine dinner that night? Like You know, like... First time they ever had an argument. Like you're not talking very much. You can go ahead and put the slide down. You know, you're not talking very much. Here's the deal, you ready? Sin always clusters. It's very, very rare that there's a standalone sin. Because sin then leads to a cover-up, which leads to lying, which leads to stealing, which leads to anxiety, which leads to worship, which leads to anger, which leads to murder, and on and on. It goes. Sin clusters. This is why we can't let the idols take root in our hearts. We have to knock them over. We need to fight to worship the true and living God because false worship and sin will rob us of life, joy, purpose, wealth, and all the things that God originally intended for us, which reminds us ultimately, that letter D, there's a penalty for sin. God is a holy God, and he takes sin serious. Exodus 32, 26 As Moses confronts the people, it says, Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp, and he said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on the side. Each of you go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell you think God's serious about sin and false worship? Listen, by the way, we don't have to go around killing people for their sin anymore. God has already sent his son to die in our place. You all with me? And when I talk about taking radical action against sin, I'm not talking about taking radical action against someone else's sin. I'm talking about we are now freed by Christ to take radical action against our own sin we have to understand that sin is not something to be coddled up with and trifled with. Some of you are trifling with sin as if it's no big deal. But Romans 6.23 says, the wage of sin is what? A wage is something that you earn. You go to work, you earn a wage from your boss, and there's a payment. The scriptures are clear that the wage of sin is death. Jesus said it this way. Go over to the next one, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, 27. Jesus, in dealing with sin and its seriousness, he says, you've heard it said that you should not commit adultery, but I say everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In other words, your sin starts in here and in here. And he's like, man, if your right eye causes you to sin... Tear it out and throw it away for it's better to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Is Jesus talking about self-maiming? Probably not. Some of you are laughing, but like, Some of you are like, you're struggling with pornography, and you can't even take the step to get an accountability partner. The wage of sin, church, is death. And we think it's like a small thing that we just continue to play around with. We'll just do it in secret, nobody will know what's going on. And Jesus is like, listen... I'm serious about this. How serious is God about our sin? He sent his son, he hung him on a cross, and he brutally and bloody died for your and my sin. In fact, there's people outside the camp of Christianity that throw stones at us and say, how dare you worship a God who would bloody his son like that? And my response is, it's because you don't understand the character of God. God cannot stand sin. And instead of me paying for my own sin, he substituted his son. And every time we look at his bloody, broken body, we go, that's how much he hates my sin. This is no trifling matter. And by the way, Jesus was perfect. He's the, if the wage of sin is death, Jesus is the only person that walked the planet that didn't deserve to die. He chose death. Talking about manning up. He chose death and it was a substitutionary death where God the Father poured out his hatred and wrath for my sin on Jesus instead of me. And then they laid his lifeless body in a grave. And guess what Jesus did? He trampled over our last enemy by stepping out of his own grave. He trampled over death by death. And he bodily rose from the grave, authenticating his claims as being the only way to God. And by the way, if you're here this morning, you don't yet know God. God loves you so much that he gave his one and only son so that you could be in relationship with God. You can stop trifling with these idols that want to rob you of life. And you can know real life in the personal work of Jesus. And all you got to do is say, you know what? I'm messed up. I'm a sinner. Turn from your sin. I believe that Jesus Christ is my rescue plan. He saved me, and I'm now in relationship with my father. That's the good news of the gospel. Amen? Amen. By the way, when it comes to inside the camp, did you know that the Lord has given the church a thing called church discipline so that inside our congregation, we can take sin seriously? Matthew 18, Jesus said this. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, guess what? You've gained a brother. That means that we should love one another in Christianity enough to go, hey, you know, I've noticed at work that you're flirting with someone that's not your wife, and I'm concerned. And if that person goes, you know what? You're right. I, I don't want to do that. Can you help me with that? Then guess what, church? You want a brother. Praise be to God. Amen? But if the person doesn't repent... Verse sixteen: If he doesn't listen, you take two or three along with you, and every charge may be established with the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses, verse seventeen: to listen to you, then tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen, even to the church, then he treat him as if he's not a Christian. Is essentially what he's saying. Let him be as you as a Gentile or tax collector. And then I always say this: I don't know exactly what verse eighteen means, but it sounds really serious. Truly, I say to you: whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven; whatever you loose on earth will be bound. Will be bound, shall be loosed in heaven. That is serious authority given to the church in regards to when someone says they're a Christian, they're a member of the church, but they're living in habitual unrepentant sin. Yes, listen. Churches that don't do church discipline are no different than a country club. I would not be a part of a church that didn't do it seriously because I'm still a sinner and I want to be under the authority of a church that would love me enough to not be on the path to death, but love me enough to go, hey, bro, I think you might be going on the path to death here, and I want to make sure you're on the path to life, and I want a church of leadership that loves me enough to say, I want you to journey with me to the path of life, because sometimes the waiting's hard. We get that, but Christ is still working in the shadows. Will you journey with me? And if a brother or sister goes, yes, I'll journey with you, you've won a brother. Praise be to God. Amen? And so I've actually preached a sermon on this, 1 Corinthians 5, I preached a sermon called Unity Through Church Discipline, and we're going to upload that on social media today. You can listen to that, okay? So our idols rob us. Our idols and our sin, they rob us of life that God has originally intended us to have. At least my final point this morning, that Jesus, number three, is our truer, better intercessor. Jesus is our truer, better intercessor. Exodus 32, Moses prays this incredible prayer. Uh, about for the people of Israel, God's really upset, and and He wants to just wipe out the whole nation and restart with Moses. And here's what Moses says in verse 11. But Moses implored the the Lord, His God, and said, "Lord." Why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger. Relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and I and all this land. I've promised I will give to your offspring, and they are, they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord resented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing upon his people. And then in verse 31, Moses goes on to pray for his people, for the people of Israel. He says, Moses "Return to the Lord. He said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin, and they have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, it, but if not, please blot out me out of your book that you have written. Man, that's some compassion, isn't it? Can I ask you a question? Are you praying for lost people? Are you praying for people that don't yet know Jesus? I hope so. I hope you're praying, God, like, man, like, God, they, I get it. They don't know you, but, man, I just, anything I can do to help them know you. Did you know that Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 said, not only should we be praying for lost people, we should be praying for our enemies. Are you praying for the people that have deeply wounded you? Actually, on my prayer list, I literally have, a, after hearing Pastor Andrew preach on that text one time, I made a pray for my enemies list. I have a pray for my enemies list. How many of you are wondering if you're on that list right now? Right? That's, uh, <laughs> and, uh, actually, I, every time I write a name on that list, it, it just writing the name humbles me because I'm like, who am I to hold a grudge against this person? and I start praying for them, and before long, I'm not, I, my anger dissipates. Now it's just like I'm praying for these people that God would bless them because there's something about interceding for people. And so, yes, we're, we've been left here as an intercessor, but I've got one even better for you. Ready? Jesus Christ is the truer, better intercessor. Jesus Christ right now is seated at the right hand of the Father, praying you home. I don't know if you thought about that. Check this out. It's in it's tucked away. It's a lo- tiny little line in Romans chapter 8 that's tucked away. Every time I read it, I'm like it gives me chills. Here it is, you ready? Romans 8:33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he's been raised. And what's he doing right now? What is Jesus Christ doing right now? You ready? He is at the right hand of God and he is indeed interceding for us. Have you ever thought of that? Jesus is praying you home right now. And by the way, what is he praying? Well, we don't know exactly, but in John chapter 17, Jesus prays what I call, most people, scholars call his high priestly prayer. It's his last prayer over his disciples before he dies raises again and ascends to the Father. And here's what he prays over his disciples. Check this out, John 17, 14. This is what I think in my speculation that Jesus is praying for you right now. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world just as I'm not of the world. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. By the way, the next time you're in a bad day and you say, hey God, just take me home, that's not what Jesus is praying for you. I've left you here for a reason, but that you would keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I'm not of the world. 17, sanctify them or make them holy in the truth, God. Your word is truth that you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself so that they also may be sanctified in the truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Here's what Jesus is praying for you. Letter A, he's praying for your protection. Protect you from the world, right? It's influences. First John 2, the influences of the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. He's praying that you would be protected from the evil one. Letter B, he's praying that you would be changed by the word of God. So as you're hearing the word of God today, you would be changing from your sinful ways and walking in holiness and righteousness. He's praying, letter C, that you would stay focused on the mission he's given you. You are not here to get through life safe, soft, easy, and comfortable. You are here to be the light of the world so that all the people who are worshiping their false idols and knowing the death and the joylessness and the lifelessness of those false idols will be able to look at you and go, something's different about you. And you get to say, let me tell you about my Savior, Jesus Christ. And he's interceding for you and he's praying you home. I got to close because I'm out of time, but here it is. I'm going to invite the worship team out. I used this story about a year ago. I'll use it again because I think it's fitting for today. About a year ago, I was over in Battery Park, and I was leaving the campus there, and I, I'm, I am such a tightwad. Like, I, I never go through Starbucks. I never go to a Wawa. I never go so. I'm such a tightwad. I'm like, ah, I'll just wait. I'm not spending money there. And uh, whatever reason, man, I left Battery Park. I was really thirsty. I saw 7-Eleven, and I pulled in for a fountain drink. And so I get the small fountain drink, And the only thing that they had left were the ginormous straws, you know, for the big, big gulps, you know. So I put it in this thing, and I'm, like, driving home like this, like, trying to drink out of my fountain drink. And I pull out, get the straw out, I put it, I'm driving back across the water. And the one, of course, I get the one straw that's cracked. (laughs) You ever had a cracked straw? I I was more exhausted trying to get the liquid out of the cup, you know. You're just like... (laughs) you know, nothing's coming and, you know, all that. And you get one little drip or one little drop. And um, that's what your idols will do to you. They're cracked and broken straws. They look enticing. They look great, but there's no life in them. And you're going to exhaust yourself. Man, man, I just want to get a drip. It is Jesus Christ who is the straw that brings life. What did he say in John chapter 8 and and John chapter 4? We looked at this a little bit last week. He is the water of life. And in John chapter 10, Jesus said something very importantly. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you might have what, church? And how much of it? Lots of it. We do not have a chintzy God. And then in John chapter 11, he said... Everyone who believes in me, even though they die, yet shall they, watch her. Our Savior gives life abundant and life eternal, and that is a straw that will quench the thirst of your soul, even in the waiting. And so let's wait with our attention focused on Christ. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Prayer team, come on up under the screens. Man, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ... I want invite you to repent of sin and believe in Jesus, man. He's the good news. If you're here this morning, you're a Christian, but you, you've been drinking out of straws that aren't giving you life, it's actually the same message to a person who doesn't know Jesus. Repent of your sin, turn from your idols, and believe in Jesus afresh and anew. Father, I pray this for my brothers and sisters in Christ this morning. They came out in this horrible weather, God. It just shows me how much this church, they love you, God. They love being together, they love worshiping you, God. I pray... For all of us in this room, it's easy to be drawn in by the things of the world. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, pride of life, the stuff we own. We think all that's important, God, but that doesn't give life. It's only Christ that gives life. God, thank you that Jesus Christ is right now at the right hand of the Father. He's praying us home, God, that we would be growing in holiness and righteousness. We'd be fulfilling the mission you've left us here to do. We're protected from the evil one, the influences of the world, God. God, if there's anyone here right now that doesn't know your spirit's moving in them, God, I pray right now that we say, God, I I confess I'm a sinner. I believe that you gave your best gift, your one and only son, to die in my place. He rose from the grave. And I invite him to be in my life right now and transform me from the inside out to give me life, quench the thirst of my soul, and reconnect me with my creator, So I can walk on the path that he made me to walk on. And Lord, as your family this morning, as your children, we go out singing and praising our great and amazing God. And it's in Jesus' most precious name I pray. Amen. Let's go out singing this morning.